I'm Joel Alden Schlosser, and I'm a political theorist, and I teach political theory at Bryn Mawr College. And I wrote the book uh, Herodotus in the Anthropocene recently. Uh, as a political theorist, I'm really especially interested in the history of democracy and the origins of democracy in ancient Athens and around the ancient world. And I turned to Herodotus in large part because I was interested in how Herodotus uh, understood and helps us to understand the relationship between politics and ecology and how democratic forms emerged in this particular ecology of the Mediterranean and uh, in relationship with other political forms and other ecologies that didn't necessarily conduce towards uh, democratic life. Okay, that is perfect. The fact that you're kind of thinking about it in a sort of um, regionally holistic way, like how come this it didn't grow here and it grew here. Mm -hmm. What do you think about typically what happens when people talk about the Greeks and Romans um, and they talk about whatever we're drawing from this classical civilization, especially democracy from from the Greek city states in whatever form it took? that they go way back. So they jump all the stuff in the middle and they want to draw back from this classical time or something mythical or magical about this mm -hmm. time. Do you feel, do you feel that too studying it? Or do you feel like, no, 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 it's a whole chronology that runs from way back when all the way to today. Or does it sometimes feel like there's a jump ancient times, the myth of democracy jumps to America. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think that it's, um, uh, well, how to put this exactly? Okay. I'll put it this way. There's the, the way that we've told the history of political thought has this kind of jump and this leap as if democracy kind of disappeared and only returned. Right. Um, but I think that that has to do with the evidence that we surveyed. And one of the things I'm working on now is actually tracing what Sheldon Woolen calls the recurrent aspiration to democracy. That is the fact that people around the world in the Western and the non-Western in the North and the South have been trying to form political organizations and political communities where equality is central and participation are central as the two fundaments of democracy, much more than we seem to think. So Woolen, when he uses that term, says, oh, it's the ancient Greeks and then like the levelers in the 17th century in England. And yeah, there is this big leap. But for people like David Graybrower and David Wengrow in their recent book, The Dawn of Everything, have sort of shown how there's lots of indigenous democratic egalitarian forms that we just have not sort of countenance, we've not really thought of as real. That's a sort of focus on this sort of quote unquote Western tradition leads us to see democracy or democratic forms as much more episodic and fugitive than they actually are. Which is one reason that Herodotus is great because he's a he's a thinker who's not squarely positioned in the Greek uh, context because he's from this sort of border area and what is now Turkey. And he really thinks seriously and thinks with a lot of non-Greek forms. And so in the book, I explore how there are egalitarian forms and that he's identifying in certain Persian practices and in certain Babylonian practices and in certain Egyptian practices. They're not yet constituted as democracy, but they are things that he's adducing as instructive to the Democrats or the people struggling on behalf of democracy around him. Do you so here's my gap. I've only just recently in the past few months started reading more Herodotus and the excerpts are pretty much exclusively excerpted from his stuff on from Egypt or on Egypt, mm -hmm. which is like all separate from this thing he did where he was looking at the origins of this massive war in in history. Mm -hmm. The Egypt stuff feels disconnected. Um he's very open-minded. He's very non-Greek obsessed. I'm I'm fascinated by his um, tendency, sort of comparative religion style, to mention 
well, I think the I think we got this god from them. We didn't mm-hmm. make this. We didn't make that. And he's super nonchalant in his writing about the fact that oh no, there's this great thing. We didn't make it. It came from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It, does that tendency crop up all the time, or when he switches to a more now I want to study a more I want to study the war and its origins? Does he become more I don't know dictating? Does he become more I want to set what's truth, or does he always have that looseness to the way he talks about stuff? He has a lot of looseness that I love, and I, I like the way that you put it, that he's he's not, he doesn't sort of um, favor one particular side very much. Uh, a later commentator, Plutarch, had, wrote a book called On the Malice of Herodotus, where he really took down Herodotus for not favoring the Spartans enough, because he thought, <laughs> how could you possibly mistake the fact that the Spartans were the superior civilization? You're spreading all these lies and rumors about him. But especially these days where we tend to think of everything as having a particular slant or, you know, we're so skeptical uh, that anybody could be open-minded. Herodotus, I think, he's he's not perfect. I'm not not saying that he's all the way, but he's showing us that if you really want to inquire into something, you have to be open-minded. You can't assume that your side is going to turn out to be on the right side or that righteousness is with you and the people that you descend from. What about the, I mean, there's a number of um of sort of vocabulary terms you pull forward and highlight in the book, but I'm curious just from your perspective. So thinking about this, I think you look at the book primarily on, so what is the primary war he's looking at? And do we have an impression from his writing about it? Why did he want to do this? Because in one mm-hmm. biograph- biographical thing, I saw that he sort of went on these journeys and travels during his life. And then later at a point said, well, now I want to work on this on this war thing, but when he was traveling that region, he wasn't really working on that project. So I don't know. Maybe you just tell me if you know biographically, how did his project come up and then how does that zoom to yours? Yeah, well, we don't know a lot about Herodotus's biography, but so what I'm going to say is a little bit speculative, but I'll give sort okay. of three <laughs> three different stories that might explain okay. why he's doing what he's doing. One is maybe more personal that he, as I alluded to a, a second ago, he comes from this area on the border of Turkey, so the west coast of Turkey, which is Greek-speaking. There were Greek settlements there, but also it was it was the convergence zone between Eastern civilizations like the Persians and Greek-speaking um, communities. So I imagine him, that young Herodotus growing up in Halicarnassus saw the ruins of this war around him. It had just happened in the previous generation. And so you can imagine there's some seed planted, just like if you had I don't know, grown up in post-Civil War, the South or something, you know, you see this, the smoking uh, ruins of the buildings around you. So that's, I think, one thing. He doesn't say that explicitly. He doesn't ever tell, talk about his origins, but that wouldn't have been generically really appropriate um, at the time. A second context would just be there. the war was a place where great things, like amazing things happened in the Greek tradition. So think of Homer, right? Think of right. the epic the struggle to defeat an enemy and to to emerge victorious from sort of conflict. So the framing of the book as I don't want these great deeds to be forgotten, these great deeds that happened during the the war between the Greeks and the Persians or the barbarians, as he puts it at the beginning, is a framing that links his text to Homer. You know, this is the longest book that's ever been written at this point in Greek language. So he's doing something epic and he wants to say, (laughs) Look, like I'm epic like Homer, like the thing that all of you have to memorize in, in your classes with your tutors. And this is the sort of founding text. I'm engaging that text. I'm part of that tradition. Um, but the third thing is that he also in that very beginning, is, and he's describing his, his project, he's talking about this is an inquiry. He's giving us a display of the inquiry that he's made into the origin of this war. 
So he's not just telling us the great deeds. He's not just telling us stories. He's trying to say, why did this happen? And that's not a question that Homer foregrounds, right? You can look at the, the Iliad and sort of try to figure it out, but he's telling the stories. And so Herodotus is doing something that's more scientific, which makes sense in the context of that area where he came from, Ionia, was where the early Greek scientists were developing their first inquiries. A lot of the language that he uses, the Greek language that he's using to describe what he's doing, is borrowed from or uh, inspiring. We don't know quite the, le- the direction of causality, right. that language that's around there. So people trying to, the sort of famous pre-Socratic philosophers, many of them are from that area saying, what is the origin of things? Is it water? Or is it fire? Is it is it conflict? Is there justice in the sort of cosmos? And those kinds of questions, are, I think, are animating his project too. This uh, so uh, the <clears throat> these early thinkers are so fascinating. I've done a lot of reading about um, you know Stoics got popular, and then I looked at the pre-Socratic philosophers. But a lot of them have sci- things we consider completely divorced from philosophy or history, mm-hmm. science, cosmology. These are things that are no, no. We don't our today philosophers today talk about them less. Our historians talk about them less. All these things that today are sort of pulled out into their separate strands are all mixed together early on. Mm-hmm. So when you look back. Um, at Herodotus, I feel like the general tenor, anybody who's heard about him would say, oh, the first sort of the godfather, grandfather of history, but got all the things wrong. So what do people actually read? So then I think there's this, mm-hmm. there's somebody who described him. I wanted to write it down. I read it somewhere. But just something basically said Herodotus is brilliantly wrong, asked mm-hmm. all the right questions, came to all the wrong answers because he didn't have all the information. When you went to draw back here, were you really thinking about, I want to, what did it have to say about political theory, the stuff you were doing now or think it applies today? And then what are ways in which people fairly or unfairly dismiss? Like, well, we're not going to treat his historical claims as real. And if he makes any claims about how the pyramids are built, well, we know that's wrong, blah, blah, blah. How do you tease that through and make it applicable to today? Yeah, I mean, one of the commentators in the 20th century called Herodotus the father of lies, right? Oh, geez, okay. That, <laughs> That's a real Plutarch there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that That is sort of, so I will, I'd make a distinction between the form of what Herodotus does and the content. And so on the content, he does say things and present them as truth that we subsequently know aren't true. Like why the Nile floods, for instance, he has all these explanations for it. He doesn't ever get to the truth of, of the matter. And there are there are other things that he Maybe he likes the story and he tells us the story, but he's, it, it's not actually factually true. But, but at the, least he does. I want to put in there. He does source very instead of just saying things mm-hmm. as if they're truth. I heard this from the priest. They say this in this town. So at least he does sort of sort. I didn't make it up. I heard it in this place. Frequently he does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and frequently. And I think that's actually related to the form of what he's doing, because he's showing us what historical inquiry looks like. And historical inquiry is actually kind of a redundancy because inquiry in Greek that he describes is historia. So history is an inquiry. Mm. And how he's showing us how to do history, even if he makes mistakes, just like if you were watching a tennis pro, the tennis pro faulted a couple of serves, you were watching that that pro's form and you're seeing this is how they do it. And, he, and that pro is maybe explaining here's exactly where you put your feet and where your uh, racket should be and that sort of thing. That, that's separate from the content. So his form of inquiry is the thing that I was actually most interested in, um, okay. in developing. How could political theory respond to this ecological crisis? How do we need to think differently? What sort of terms of thinking might Herodotus give us and patterns or practices of thinking um, are, are, that involve things like democracy, 
and freedom and common and terms that we're still thinking with, but he's actually giving us a different sense of them. So if it is tied into, and I, I read significant parts of the book, if it is tied into this idea of, so I don't know how to, is it Anthropocene? How would you yeah, pronounce Anthropocene it? Anthropocene is how I do it. Okay. Yeah. Wait, and how do you pronounce Herodotus? Is it Herodotus or something else? You've got it right. Herodotus. Okay. <laughs> Herodotus, Anthropocene. Um, it's interesting. Democracy. So, Thinking about how democracy plays into this in our era in a problem with the climate crisis is part of it is whatever. I think the tragedy of the commons, part of the beautiful part of a tyrannical government Mm -hmm. or a government of, you know, again, a benevolent dictatorship, people can see a group problem, a societal problem, a cultural problem, an environmental problem, and by force of law and violence or by everyone loving the king or queen, Make it so. Build the pyramids, take down the pyramids. Build Mm -hmm. a dam, take down the dam. Very easy. Democracy and the climate crisis, that just seems like a tough intersection because the little changes people make, when you're thinking about it as the Anthropocene, this is the effect humanity as a species is having on the globe. That's just so big. And then democracy Mm -hmm. is back down to the individual choices people make and inside their political system. I don't know. That just seems difficult. Yeah, and it, I've had some exchanges with other people about this, and it's something I'm working on now in my current book, which is called Earthborn Democracy. I'm co-writing with David McIver and Ali Aslam. It's more of on contemporary democracy, but it's bringing forward some of these ideas that came up in Herodotus and the Anthropocene. Okay. But one way I think about it is this: this these authors, um, Joel Wainwright and um, Jeffrey Mann, have a book called Climate Leviathan, where they say, this is the way that even liberals, people who respect freedom to some extent, want to solve the climate crisis. They want a Leviathan. They want an all-powerful sovereign to yes. step in and control the people. And you know, if you've read Hobbes' Leviathan, that control goes pretty <laughs> far down. Um, but they, one of their points in that book is that that's actually um, making a sort of epistemological mistake that you can, that somehow you can understand the the complexity of these problems from this high altitude seen like a state perspective. And their argument in part is that, no, there needs to be solidarity among different groups and cooperation, what they call climate X, in forms of resistance and organization, because that's the only way that there won't just be a sort of rough shot running over all the differences among regions and people and culture and non-humans and things. So I think Herodotus is kind of in that vein of thinking about how would we we want. We really would love to believe that there's a single solution to this problem. And I often so easy. Assert, yeah. like we know what we need to do, but it, and at some very general level we do. But then how that would kind of have an effect and take root and be sustained depends upon popular participation. It depends upon people doing those things. So I think Herodotus's emphasis is on how power can be built and sustained through that participation in structures and practices that are built around equality, which doesn't mean it wouldn't help to have a sort of state cooperative. Um, and that's what I'm doing in this next book is bringing together both those. I'm, I'm gesturing from the bottom and then from the top at the same time. Okay. Uh, so because the Leviathan is only coming from the top down uh, in some, I mean, in the, in the way that Wainwright and Mann are describing it, for instance, Herodotus is theorizing how would it come also come from the bottom up and what kind of knowledge um is only possible uh, when you're engaging in the particular region or practices or culture. Those can't be can't be known from this sort of uh, high altitude perspective. 
are there particular moments in his describing the history? So I see it in his writing on Egypt where mm-hmm. he's he's so, sort of sitting back and observing why do people do what they do here? How is it different? And then oftentimes not casting any aspersions. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians do this. The Greeks do that. The Egyptians do this. The Greeks do that. Oh, that's interesting. That's very interesting how people do different things in different places without sort of casting any judgment or saying one's better than the other, just observing yeah. things. Where does that sort of observation of a regional area in Herodotus, where do you see that that could become <clears throat> po- that could become political action? That could become healing mm-hmm. situations in the small region that mm-hmm. could help in a larger way. Yeah, this is a this leads me to one of my favorite examples. So in Ooh, book, good. book four, um, so Herodotus, for those who haven't read it, uh, the histories, he starts with what are the origins of this conflict between the Greeks and the barbarians, the Persians. And then he says, but to really start this, I have to go back to another person, another group that wasn't the Persians, and that's Croesus and the Lydians. And he sort of starts that story. And he has this tendency, this is why he gets to Egypt, to digress into giving these long backstories about the people that are involved in the conflict. So he he does this with the Scythians who are uh, in the Scythians are the names for the peoples that are around the Black Sea region on the west side. So uh, areas that are now like Ukraine and uh, Belarus and Romania, sort of on that west coast of Black the Black Sea. And uh, the Persians invade the Scythians, and there's some they are unsuccessful ultimately. And one of the reasons that the Scythians are so powerful, and Herodotus says at, at a, a moment in the in the histories in Book Four. I don't really like a lot of what the Scythians do, but this is the one thing I really admire, he says. And he says, they take their rivers as allies. And he uses a word, sumakos, that's really only used for humans, like as if I would, you would be allied to me in this, this cause. And they take them as allies. And he's, he's spent a lot of time in that, that chapter describing all of the many rivers in this region, um, including this river called the Borostenes, which is now, it's in the center of Ukraine. It, cap, it connects Ukraine to Russia and it's the border. Uh, so it's it's uh, known as the Dnieper right now, but it's a very contemporary river. Uh, and it's a river that he loves. And it's he sees it as the kind of cradle of Scythian civilization. So the way that the Scythians take the rivers as allies is Rather than treating them as resources to be exploited, they use their power uh, to their own advantage. So they are tr- they are able to trap the Persians in this network of rivers because they know the rivers and where to cross the rivers and when the rivers are safe and when the rivers are unsafe. And they can kind of work with the rivers and they're somewhat in- unpredictable character in ways that only they can because they know. They live there, right? They've studied them. They get up every morning and see how the river is behaving. They're in a relationship with that river. Exactly. And that relationship is in some extent reciprocal because they're not trying to control it. They're not damming it up. They're not diverting it, which which are things that other people, especially the Persians, do across the histories to their own detriment. They are working with it um, as a kind of equal partner in protecting their freedom. So Herodotus praises this and he says, this is a way that they've discovered to, to me to maintain their freedom, unlike any other people that I know, because they're not tied to a particular place. They can work with and around the rivers and, and move around. Um, and the Persians aren't unable to do that, which is why they're defeated. They ultimately can't conquer the Scythians. 
to draw it to today, I mean, you said it's kind of unfair because you say you're working on a book where you're like, oh, I get this. People like this idea of a giant state and the giant state <laughs> sort of exists everywhere. Giant corporations, giant governments, giant bureaucracies, mm-hmm. and then even worse, globalization in a way that the ancient world, I mean, probably felt like it had experienced. But now we truly have globalization mm-hmm. with, again, telecommunications, communication, instantaneous communication. Everybody knows where everybody else is. Uh, what could... Has this reached a point at which this idea of uh, living in a place and finding particular solutions in that place simply cannot exist because Mm -hmm. the Leviathans or the the empires have grown too large, the kings are too powerful, that sort of thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is – in more recent times, the sort of bioregional approach I think has been uh, the bastion of resistance to a lot of those globalizing, totalizing forces. Um, And you might think about like Schumacher's Small is Beautiful and the kind of advocacy for local solutions. And there are – I think there are both um, epistemological reasons, like I said before, but also political reasons. So it may be that we – our freedom is going to become so eroded that people will no longer care for democracy as the the form through which I think human beings can reach the kind of highest flourishing possible. But I want to die on that hill, as a colleague (laughs) of mine would say. Um, Why? Because I I think that what it means to be a human being is to participate in community and to have – to be held accountable, to participate in in rule and being ruled and to hold others accountable who are ruling over you. And that that develops certain capacities that we can't develop simply as um, happy uh, servants of Jeff Bezos or whoever it is. That's (laughs) right. um, And I I mean, I think there are, there are real, I would point to like lots of movements around the world for democracy in the workplace uh, and corporations that have recognized that like with, um, worker-owned firms and, um, you know, giving the employees um, much more um, governance to more radical movements to the, like the Zapatistas to uh, things like Amandragon, which is where there's a sort of economic cooperative model that's actually competing with a lot of uh, global, highly hierarchical businesses. So the sort of inevitability um, argument, it certainly in the most recent past seems like that's the case, but on the longer view, there's been a lot of struggle towards um, these forms. Now, like somebody like Don Haraway in the end of her book, Staying with the Trouble, she imagines this sort of emergence of a kind of multi-species democracy where humans and non-humans are actually interacting in more reciprocal ways. But the premise for that is the radical decline of human population. <laughs> um, I, there are times when I feel like that is going to be necessary. Um, I, will, I still want to believe that we can find forms and that wouldn't necessitate uh, a kind of rebalancing of the species imbalance presently. I mean, given in our lifetimes, how many non-human species have completely gone extinct and how many humans and chickens to feed those humans have replaced us, replaced them. But uh, I'm, I'm not willing to wager uh, what the answer to that problem is. I think, you know, if I were to speculate about Herodotus's response, I think one of the things that is hopeful about him that um, maybe is worth reminding ourselves of is just his wonder at the complexity of the world. So complexity can go different ways. So it can be really great. Biodiversity tends to be something that we think of as a complexity we want, but right. the complexity of like the plastics in the ocean is a complexity we don't really want to deal with, right? <laughs> uh, we haven't figured out a solution for it, but he would still, his response to that rather than a kind of fatalistic, oh, like we're fucked, like so we're not going to get out, out of this problem, I think would be like, 
how can we investigate this? Like, let's go look and let's figure like a sort of, you've probably encountered in your podcast or in your life, scientists who, who exemplify this, just like they may be fighting the, the good fight against horrible things, but they're just so um, almost erotically energized and excited by discovery and inquiry. And I think Herodotus really models that in, in a kind of social, scientific, anthropological way too. Um, that's interesting. If that's true, it makes me think I do. I've done reading lately, 1800s and 1900s, where it's still, even though the ancient world was long gone, there still were the, was the sense that there are places on the world we haven't explored yet. Mm -hmm. So that sense of that erotic, excited, passion driven, almost, oh, it gets me off being able to find these yeah. new things that haven't been there. As those things dwindle away, is there anything do you look back to this time when there was much unknown, mm. especially these scientists, as you said, do things come from the earth? Is it water? Is it fire? Yeah. What's these primal elements? And now we're like, ah, it's a lot of nonsense. We know all that already. Mm -hmm. In the Anthropocene, it seems like we are very convinced that we can that we have learned most of the things to know. We already know every don't we already mm -hmm. know everything? There's books, there's internet full. Mm -hmm. That curiosity, do you think the this wherever we are now? sort of tamps down that sort of excited wonder or you're like no no it's still out there and all the people yeah that's a really interesting question i had um a friend of mine is writing a book about wonder and uh, there's certainly a discourse in environmental studies that's sort of saying we need to wonder more because yeah we know everything but wonder is different from knowing wonder is kind of recognizing that for as much as we know these things can still surprise us i mean rivers like we think that we know the way that this river is going to act and then it floods unpredictably <laughs> right? Uh, right and we don't really know a lot we the weather like this thing that affects us every day we don't really know how that's going to uh, pan out so i think it may be that there's a sort of uh, false idea that we do know a lot more than we do and that that needs displacing in order to like recover some of this this wonder and realize how little we do know i mean it may also be that just uh, as a, my first book was on Socrates and the unexamined life being not worth living and knowing that I do not know as sort of big starting points for me, a kind of humility about what we know, um, which opens up this world of possibilities. I mean, just the simple fact of living with other people. I don't know these other people in my house, really. Like I've spent a lot of life with some of them, but they can still surprise me. And I, I think, again, we, there, are, there are stories that we tell ourselves about the predictability and the rationality of everything that's happening, but I think that those are stories that often hide the complexity. So it's a matter of attuning yourself and developing habits of attention towards all of that complexity and those differences. And that kind of attunement and attention, I think, is something that reading Herodotus helps in the same sense that reading Rachel Carson or Robin Wall Kimmerer or sort of contemporary ecology um, can help too. So Herodotus asks a lot of questions. So he's curious and he's wondering um, at what level today, I think people hand off and say, well, some scientist or someone in the world understands that. So I can hand that off to the mystery. Mm -hmm. Someone else knows that mystery. Do the fate or the gods. It was interesting mm -hmm. to hear him sort of excitedly talk about, oh, yeah, this God's like that God, just sort of offhand in a way that today's like monotheistic believer would be horrified to say, well, Jesus, we didn't get Jesus from here. Yeah. And, but, you know, yeah. Krishna was not developed from this other thing. And this is, uh, but he's super offhanded about, they have this priesthood here. And I think they took the stuff from here and they got it from over there. And I don't mm -hmm. know where they invented it, but it probably came from over there. The fate in the gods, does that have a big part 
in your religion, fate, gods, does that have a big part in your conception of Herodotus? Um, it does, but maybe not quite enough. There are certain critics of the book that I've had conversations with who have said, no, you know, you're, you're putting, giving too much agency to human beings. Um, but I, the way that I sort of treat it is that those are, again, like you said earlier, there are stories that he'll tell and he'll say, I don't know if this is true. And most of the time with the gods, that's the way he presents it, or he'll say, this is what people believe. And leave, I'll leave it to you to be the judge implicitly. Um, there are a couple of moments where he says, like when the Athenians have this great victory against the Persians, he says, it must have been the gods. Now, debating that, scholars, including me, have debated about that passage. And I would, my line is that that's a plausible explanation. You know, so it's not that he's necessarily endorsing it. It's just that's what most of his audience would believe. And he's giving us that as probably the most believable reason because otherwise can't explain it. But I think a lot of the times the fate and the divine and the gods for him are ways of describing things that could still be investigated. Um, so he is, he is an agnostic, I think, in a very literal sense. He doesn't believe he knows yet, but he's putting something there that seems to be plausible but hasn't yet been disproved or proven otherwise. And that's a different level of sort of um, endorsement than saying it definitively was the gods or like, let me show you, or, you know, here's, here's the, what the prophet said or the soothsayer or the, or the, the text or whatever like that. Right. Um, but I think in general, one of the things I, one of the things I love imagining about Herodotus, I don't know if this is true. People have talked about it is that when he went to Athens, he spent some time there as far as we know. And I imagine that he, and Sophocles spent a lot of time together. They're contemporaries. There are moments in the histories that sound like they could be straight out of Sophocles, especially some of the characterizations of uh, the Persians even. Yeah. I imagine that he and Sophocles would talk about this a lot. Like they've had a few wineskins, they're sitting around the fire <laughs> and they're, they're saying, Sophocles is saying, but Herodotus, you know, ultimately it's fate in the gods because Sophocles was very pious. And this was a question that was so central to him. Um, and Herodotus says something like, but you have to believe that there are moments when what a human being chooses to do that are decisive too. And they just go back and forth about that. Like to what degree <laughs> do we, it's sort of a free will determinism, but at a very right. level, a very like, uh, and they were, you know, Sophocles was a general Herodotus had known to study this war. I mean, I think I can imagine them talking about that in very specific ways, of, you know, on, on this hillside uh, overlooking this bay, you know, there is this choice by this captain and it could have gone one way or the other way. And Herodotus loves those moments too across his histories of if only this thing hadn't, had, hadn't, hadn't happened, it, you know, it's a sort of butterfly effect that he frequently returns to, um, I think to show contingency, but also like moments of human agency that every, every little thing does, does matter in some way, in a way that the, the big sw uh, swoop of Sophocles kind of fate you know um <laughs> right he sometimes i mean i think at, sometimes it can seem like he, he thinks that we're all play things in the hands of the gods um it's interesting to call this era the anthropocene because when i think back to the other <clears throat> prehistoric eras big things happened we weren't acting no animals seemed mm -hmm. to be acting we wouldn't assume there are any sentient conscious beings making plans but huge changes happened to the world in all these eras and then in our era it always makes me think and thinking of it like an era of the jurassic or the cretaceous 
it makes me think, well, humanity has this direction like a river and it's just going to go in that direction. Can we really curb the river? So maybe again, the determinism free will thing, but in your mind, do you look at, do you have a clear bent? I think you, it sounds like you have a clear bent one way we have agency, but I could also see how it's very easy to say, well, we can look at these things after the fact, like Herodotus did, but the Anthropocene goes where it wants to go. If mm-hmm. we're all going to be gone, we're all be gone. If we're not, we're not. I yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a more complex system than we can steer, okay. which doesn't mean that we don't have some agency, but it's, uh, and I, I think there's a little bit of sense of sort of a modern, um, I was going to say pathos, but it's 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 different from that kind of. There, some of the response I think to the climate crisis is, oh, like we're it's out of control, like it's beyond us. But I think that that presumes that we've had control in the past in some way, <laughs> and we can still be causative um, agents. Like we could still be responsible without ever having had control, um, in the sense of like we did things that we didn't know the consequences of. I'm much less. Um, modern or at least like confident about our ability to predict the consequences of our actions. And I think some, some people who make those kinds of critiques are, so you could, you could say there are a lot of things that we can do and yet it's not entirely in our control. Um, now doing those things would certainly, uh, would certainly, um, aid in combating some of the detrimental effects, but do we know exactly then what would happen as a result of our doing those things? No. Like that's the that's the complexity of political life um, and of ecological life that we're talking about. When you have students who are studying political theory in your classes, and I assume many of them are studying political theory because they want to be efficacious and they want to be mm-hmm. agents in the world of politics or understand what's going on, to present Herodotus, who is very curious and addressing all the complexity and then not being able to nail down a lot, is that exciting for these young political theorists or is that frustrating for them? Um, it's a little frustrating, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, one thing is that in general, a lot of political theory has a kind of conservative tilt to it, not in the sense of like conservative, like the Republican Party in the United States, but conservative in terms of a little more skepticism about our ability to control and determine and influence the world. Yes. Um, and I, the first time I actually taught Herodotus, I was I had a wonderful experience uh, teaching at Carleton College, and there were a lot of strong international relations majors there. And this course that I taught was called Justice Among Nations, and it brought together um, IR, international relations, and political science. So I had political theory students, I had some classicists because I was teaching Herodotus Thucydides, and I had these IR students. And this was during the era of the war in Afghanistan and this sort of famous slide deck that came out, you might remember it, of how to map all the complexity in Afghanistan and the project of exporting democracy to Afghanistan. And it was like (laughs) insane. It was absurd how many little connecting squares and dots and circles. I mean, it was an attempt to diagram this enormously complex history. And of course, like all the suffering and pain that was happening as a result of this war in Afghanistan, which wasn't, you know, which was just one of another war that uh, colonial history and whatnot, um, couldn't be contained there, couldn't be conveyed. And I think a lot of the students who are coming in with kind of this idea that I'm going to go out and do things in in international politics, they, they reading Thucydides and no shade on Thucydides, you can often get the impression like, oh, here are the levers of power. Here's how it works. He's a realist or is portrayed as a realist. Herodotus just frustrates the hell out of that, right? Because <laughs> he's, he's, 
he, Herodotus is the one who would say, if you're going to try to understand anything, anything about this country, you've got to go live there and learn the language and like really get in, enmeshed in that place. Yeah. And in general, people who do that, I think, are much more hesitant to then try to manipulate diplomatically or militarily the, that particular community because they see all of its um, complexity and, and the nuance and sort of it's how opaque it is to people who aren't there and don't know the language and don't know the people. Yeah. Um, so in many ways, Herodotus, I think, can frustrate the certain kind of political science student who wants to do good. But the hope is that the, the rather than impeding or obstructing that, it actually just makes it a little more um, responsive and attentive to the particular people that are involved in whatever do-gooding project we're talking about, you know, that it can complement and not get in the way of doing justice in the world um, because it makes that justice more attuned to the world's complexity. So I am in full sympathy with everything you just said about Herodotus, but I could also see how someone would be frustrated. One common complaint about the <clears throat> American Democratic Party as opposed to the American Republican Party. The American Democratic Party has many, many voices, and they try to have all those voices mm -hmm. heard, and that slows down, confuses, and makes very complex any attempt to push anything forward or move anything forward because there are so many voices, and we're trying to gather so much information. So I, I don't know. Just to, what, what, do, what do you – I am in sympathy with your idea. I think it's better to slow down. You should live some. If you're going to go screw something up, you ought to go there and at least ask the people and see what it's like there, so you have an impression. But that takes time. I mean, yeah. isn't it easier just to have the slide? You got the slide deck. Everything's <laughs> exactly. in the little nodes on the thing. We're all good. Yeah. Well, we see where that went. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I like I. That goes back to Herodotus and Sophocles. I think there's this this all too human impulse towards simplification uh, in order to control get the biggest lever, get the biggest hammer, get the biggest weapon. And yes, Herodotus is warning us against that. And we don't want to hear it. Um, <laughs> right. But it's reality. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think that that's one reason I really love teaching and thinking about antiquity, because that's I think that's a, a thematic in the pre-modern world of thinking of, of a kind of humility about human action. That the modern world, and I'm speaking very generally, which is the one that we're sort of still thinking within, um, despite all the resistance of postmoderns and others, uh, presumes that we have a lot more power in action. And, you know, we can point to, oh, there are lots of things like we built bridges, you know, we have nuclear submarines or whatever those things are. Yep. Yes, but have we conquered this sort of ultimate un unknowability or as Hannah Rent says, the unpredictable, boundless nature of action, of human action? I don't think that that's gone. I don't think that, um, again, because of all of the all the the players there, um, which doesn't mean we shouldn't have a more strategic focused wing of the American Democratic Party. Right. right sure. <laughs> but we, can we can we do both of it? Can we have Thucydides and Herodotus at the same time? I think that's to sort of to hold that tension and complexity between the need to act, which is going to be based upon simplification, um, and the need to continue to study to understand what's not simplifiable. Okay, in order, again, I would like what you just said also to be true. Like, is there a way to balance between these two things and go between the two dangerous elements and steer our ship between them? One of my favorite uh, letter writers and thinkers is uh, Cicero. Mm -hmm. And again, he went up against a very successful, probably well-meaning 
person a tyrant, an emperor, somebody who became emperor and ruined his beautiful, the thing he saw was beautiful. The, yeah. the Senate they had, the democracy, whatever they had, as flawed as it was, he thought somebody coming in and taking power was worse than that, even if in the short term it was good. But that the appeal for the people who want to steer the ship between the two difficult things and have balance because of this powerful urge. So there's this urge, as you said, um, there's one person who theorizes maybe there's this urge that crops up everywhere for democracy about individual agency and coming together as a group and making mm -hmm. decisions together as a group. There's this other unassailable and wickedly powerful tendency for the Leviathan, for the tyrant, for yeah. the emperor. Yeah. I don't know. So that the fact that that tendency is there, it means the people trying to steer in the middle just get hammered on that side. Mm -hmm. So tempting mm -hmm. to have the solution, the mm -hmm. lead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is yeah. so? I, I you don't have to fix that. What is Herodotus? I didn't see he, but again, I didn't read his stuff on the war. His stuff on Egypt is he talks about kings and queens, and they're interesting, yeah. and he talks about how some of them fail or not. But he's not obsessed with, as you said, Thucydides. At pointing out here are the three laws of power and why this person failed. Mm -hmm. He's not so much into that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is there an answer? Does Herodotus have an answer to what happens when these powerful people crop up? To me, it just seemed like he was describing them interestingly, yeah. but not saying here's how to stop them. Here's why they go away. Yeah. He, I mean, he doesn't exactly have an answer, but I think one of the things across the arc of the book, and this is especially in the Greek sections, some yeah. of which happen in book one, but most of which happen books five through the end uh, is there's this constant battle between tyranny or oligarchy and democracy. And reading it and teaching it, I think the lesson that you take is that democracy must be defended. That it's not <laughs> something, or the, or the republic must be defended. It's not something that you can achieve and it will just sort of continue to, to work for itself. One of my teachers, Peter Eubin, used to like to say, citizenship is like going to the gym. You can't hire somebody else to do it for you, right? <laughs> That's the Romans needed that lesson. What exactly. an important lesson. And, and I think we need that lesson too, you know, that it's not something that we can buy off or pay for. It's something we have to do ourselves. Otherwise democracy it becomes vitiated. So that's a way of thinking about, it's not just the sort of complexity and whole, you know, st sort of staying back and studying things. It's out, it's acting on those things um, yeah. and trying to figure out actions and policies that are both um, reflective of the best that we know, but also, like the best part about democracy is in many ways, like it can revise itself. Like the people isn't not so singular, like a leader that it can become convicted of one particular thing. That plurality allows for us to have dissent and difference and different opinions. So we can revisit an issue. Thucydides tells that wonderful story about the Athenian democracy deciding that they're going to kill all the people of Mytilene for revolting. And then the next day they wake up and they were like, no, no, we don't want to do that anymore. We changed our mind. And they send the ship after the first ship and it managed to get there just in time. And sort of the, that idea that doesn't happen as often with one, one mind that needs to change um, because it's already, it's convicted, right? Uh, yeah. As opposed to having some difference within that decision. But I think right now, at least in the United States, we have a lot of there's a there's because of polarization because of uh, a sort of creeping anxiety and fear that ability both on both the left and the right to stay in a position of kind of moral complexity to be able to say this is the best thing that we think we can do and yet we see the problems and limitations with it and it's it's mu it seems much less tenable than it used to be to do that and maybe the you know the moment that you're referring to in Cicero's uh, uh, Rome was similar. Um, 
So it might be that uh, this is a, this is not a moment for Herodotian complexity. Uh, <laughs> if it's which doesn't mean that we lose the story, because I think one of the other things political theorists are doing is not just sort of giving us knowledge about how politics works at this level of theory or sort of abstraction, but also telling stories to remind us of other possibilities. And so I think one of the the lessons from Herodotus in that sense is that again, like things could be different. These are other stories that we might tell and what sort of realities do those stories hold, which we could start telling the story and it could fall on deaf ears for a while. Sure. But it's better to tell the story than to forget it. What drew you, so in your trajectory now teaching political theory, what drew you to the classics or Herodotus? I mean, were you a classics major who has steered this way or did you discover the classics late in your academic life? Um, I actually... Came came later, but not that late, I suppose. Uh, okay. I didn't study classics as an undergraduate. Um, and I had a, a funny moment. So yeah. the thing that I probably did the most I mean, in college was play the piano um, and classical music. And uh, because of that, in part, I decided to learn German and like studied in Germany. And just, I was, you know, I'm, I'm in many ways a creature who would very happily live in the 19th century, <laughs> uh, so long as my social position afforded me the things that I want to do. Right. Um, and uh, as a result of that interest in music and in German, uh, I really wanted to study Nietzsche. And I'd read some Nietzsche in some courses. And I went into my professor's office who had taught Nietzsche in those courses. And as I came into his office, I moved some books off of the chair that was across from his desk to sit down. And I sat down and he looked at me and I said, I really would love to study Nietzsche. Like, could we do an independent study and I'll just read as much as I can and talk to you about it? He sort of looked at me and he said, look at those books that you just moved off the chair. And I looked down and there were all these copies, different translations and commentaries on Plato's Symposium. And he said, I think that it would be wise to read some Plato before getting into Nietzsche. And I fell in love with the symposium. I just oh! read it again and again. I thought it was one of the greatest works of, of art and of philosophy I'd ever encountered. And uh, it just planted a seed. And I ended up spending a whole year writing a thesis on Plato and then going and learning ancient Greek. And then ancient Greek stuff became primary in my graduate career. Uh, I still haven't gotten back to the Nietzsche yet. <laughs> you never got back from uh, that German Occasionally, you know, I'll just, I'll read some Nietzsche for a while just to remind myself. Uh, <laughs> and I'm still playing and listening to lots of music. But um, Plato and the symposium were the entry points. And then learning the language just opened up this world. Uh, and that allowed, that got me into so many other texts and and just to the, the all the different um, contexts of, of ancient Greek. Um, and I don't know when I will exhaust that, that world of exploration. I, that's perfect. That led me right into, cause I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> I have a friend who's getting sort of returning to his Catholic roots and becoming sort of trad Catholic. So the people who are like, ah, Vatican II, we're not so hot on that. We want the Latin mass. Mm -hmm. Latin's not that hard to learn people. Come on, learn some Latin. And it got us thinking about, so I do Hebrew and I can read the Bible. And so I've, I did Hebrew wow. late in life. And then, you know, so I can read stuff out of the Bible and read stuff out of the prayer book. Do we need you? As you just said, you cracked the, the Greek code and now you can read all these things. Is there a massive difference between the original Greek and these English or French or Italian or German translations? Mm -hmm. Is it just so wildly different? You just lose the nuances on all these words because that's how it feels like sometimes for the Hebrew. The English yeah. does very good. I can read Herodotus in English and I can get so much out of it, but then it does make me wonder, knowing my other foreign languages, I bet I'm missing a lot. Like these words probably have a lot of nuances I'm missing. Yeah. I mean, you you do lose a lot. You, 
I'm teaching the Plato's Republic right now in translation, and it's just, it's really an excellent translation that Tom Griffith did with uh, Giovanni Ferrari. And this, I think that they've done a really wonderful job of kind of bringing it into the kind of playful conversational tone that a lot of translations of ancient Greek texts and Plato especially don't. Um, and yet <laughs> it's, it's still, it's an interpretation. You know, every translation is an interpretation. It's a really good interpretation, but as an interpretation, it loses that complexity that's there when you're facing these um, kind of irreducible words on the page. Right. Yes. Um, and I mean, I would love in some ways just to like teach Greek all the time and just do Greek texts and just to submerge, because I think as a political theorist, I'm always teaching things in translation and right. not teaching language. So it's my, my Greek is, not where I would like it to be, but I think in some ways that allows me to sort of experience the acuteness of the problem even more because I really want it, want these texts to speak to people who are never going to learn Greek, uh, and that's why you know I don't use Greek characters in my publications because I want people at least to be able to see and hear what's transliteral, what does the transliteration sound like of this word, and to just note this is something else, like this is not English. Um, and the English word is already an interpretation, um, but it is it is a great loss. And it's been such. Some of my students have gone on and learned Greek. Some of them are learning Greek now, and you just see it when they look at you. You real they realize what is there when they get into that world enough. Which I think you probably experienced learning Hebrew. Um, that it is it's an entirely different world, uh, and so to experience the text in that world is just utterly different um, from experiencing in our world. Not that there's no relationship between the two, but uh, yeah, they they're 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 from different different eras and different um, different. I'm a different person in that world as opposed to this one. Um, it also does make me, you know, you uh, especially. Uh, so I don't know how Greek is, but Hebrew has, you know, these these. Well, I know Latin does this big on roots. If you can recognize parts of words, you can figure mm -hmm. out words are based on the roots. And Hebrew is all about this three letter root. And the possibility of that is just, you know, that could be protect, that could be guard, that could mm. be cherish, that could be love somewhere else. And it's like every word just explodes in a million directions. And mm -hmm. I think there's an inclination by people, when, especially when I talk about things in translation, they, they want to be settled down and tell me what it means. And I'm like, I can't tell you what it means. The words, it's like a web, but that word yeah. attaches to that word. Does Greek feel like that where when you go in, it feels more open to possibility, more open to complexity, and that's a good feeling? I yeah. Know. I mean, Greek doesn't, I don't know Hebrew, but it, I don't think it has the same degree of sort of root base as you're describing okay. in Hebrew. But one of the things that it does have is there's a sort of, I'm not, I'm, I may not say this in exactly the right way, but kind of more floating syntax. So English is really dependent upon word order to give meaning, you know, subject, verb, object. And that doesn't happen in Greek. So when I say floating, <laughs> things are sort of all next to each other, which means you can you can change things, move the order of things in a lot of different ways for emphasis. And I'm not a deep enough student to be to have a subtle enough. This ear is my problem with Hebrew. Hebrew is the exact same thing. You can reorder words all the yep. But that, but that, and that plus the way that they use participles, which are like floating phrases, kind of that can also be moved around. So it's not just each individual word, but whole phrases can be floating like that and kind of boxed off. Um, that allows. 
I just remember the first my first immersion in Plato. After a while, you start to see the way that he constructs sentences in a, in in that in a particular way. There's like recurrent patterns, but every author has that, and it's because of the because of the structure allowing for this different word order and variation. It can there's just a whole nother range of expression, um, which leads to a lot more, I think, complexity and nuance than than at least the English that we're familiar with today. Did you ever fall in love with anything that Plato did as much as you did that first the symposium? I love the Republic so much and okay, teaching it again. Um, I, you know, I was just saying to a colleague that this is the, I, I teach the Republic like every three or four years, but a lot's happened in the last three or four years since I taught it. Um, uh, became a father, I became an authority, like the chair of my department and got tenure and then like the pandemic and loss in my family and realizing like this is what makes a classic in my mind it's a book that you return to and you see how you've changed in your relationship to it because it's 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 there and steady but you notice new things you know if it were simplistic it would be the same thing or it probably sadly could be disappointing yeah. but there are new things that come to attention and i was just rereading in translation book eight and it has all this description of fathers and sons and it's very different for me than it ever had been. Um, and I think it, the Republic, I love the symposium intensely, but the Republic has a sort of epic scope to it beyond the symposium that still, that would be the, the book that I would, I would, you know, take to the desert Island. I think Plato's Republic. Wait, so you loved Plato, but then Aristotle, I mean, I think Plato's, Plato and Socrates are so much fun to read. And I love Aristotle, but talk about narrowing things down into a system and systematizing mm -hmm. and formalizing and like, here are the rules for the way things are. Why did Aristotle appeal to you enough to want to do a whole book about? Did You, you mean Herodotus? No. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, Aristotle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, did you ever? Oh, this is my, you wrote a book. Did you write a book on Socrates or Aristotle? Socrates, yeah. Socrates. Okay, that would, I answered my own question. You didn't do Aristotle. Did Aristotle ever appeal to you? In, still never, does, I, yeah. Still, okay, still does. Yeah, but uh, a friend of mine said the older he gets, the more he likes Aristotle. And Really? I, I have found that to be true, but I think Aristotle's at such a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis Plato and others that he's, he, I'm not sure he'll ever catch up. The, the other thing that I'm working on now that's really exciting to me is um, some of the Socratics of the fourth century. So the fourth century in Athens, you have this amazing um, efflorescence of philosophical activity. The Cynics, the Stoics, and the Epicureans all arise right then in that context. And that's also the context when Athens as a democracy is declining and losing power as the Macedonians led by Alexander the Great invade from the north and basically take control, although the Athenian democracy still kind of exists as a shell of itself. So that moment is really interesting to me. How is it that Socrates and Socratic philosophy and practice takes this kind of radical form of refusal, refusing the, the political community in certain ways, whether that's by confrontational refusal like Diogenes the Cynic or withdrawal like the Stoics and the Epicureans, and yet is continuous in some way, I think, with the sort of democratic edge of what Socrates was doing, holding people to account, you know, saying, how are you going to govern yourself? Um, you must live an examined life. These are things, at least on my interpretation, that challenge but also deepen democratic practice. I wonder, that is interesting because I've confronted, there are two very different Stoicism. There's that Socratic Stoicism and then the Roman Stoicism later on. Like Cicero's a Stoic, but Cicero's not a Stoic in the way that Epictetus yeah. was a Stoic. yeah. 
So that I'd never thought about that moment about the political things going on, about the fact that that power was going because you can feel that sense of you need to be clear on what you can control and what you can't control. Mm-hmm. Having to give up on if you want to hold your values, you can't go into the pub. You can't you can't worry about all the things in the public. You're going to have to make sure you do the right thing. That does feel very insulating. I, I worry that that's what's happening now as people give up on a globalist world and say, mm-hmm. it's too big. It's too out of my control. My, you know, again, the vote doesn't matter. My mm-hmm. dollar barely matters. I don't have control leaning in the fa- the success of stoicism, managing your own feelings, managing your own virtue sometimes does feel like that. Uh, yeah. Like a refusal. Like yeah. I'm, the only way for me does not to participate. Yeah. One of the things I'm interested there, and this would be the f- a future conversation, I hope okay. <laughs> how, the the deeper that you go into that kind of refusal um, and the, what I call sort of governing the self, the more that you realize the necessity of participating in governance with others. So that it's actually like as you build the walls of the intercitadel, you realize their precarity and their the impossibility of walling yourself off. But that's there's actually something I want to write eventually on Marcus Aurelius that's I think going to go farther into that problem than. Because the, the early Cynic Stoics and Epicureans were still really enmeshed in political fabric. I mean, they were saying these things, yet they were practicing friendship. The, the Stoics are so-called because they were practicing in the Stoa alongside the Agora of Athens, the marketplace. So they wanted visibility. Like they were really, they were successors to the Cynics in that sense of like being public, but being slightly off to the side. So that there's still this important relationship to public life there that I think somebody like Marcus Aurelius or Cicero They've, they've, there's a stronger line or there's a brighter line between the public and the private um, that I haven't fully grappled with. Um, I was just in Rome like a couple of weeks ago and so excited to think about that project being in this, that space and just yeah. being, and imagining what it was like and how it's so, so different from being in the, the space of democratic Athens. As um, as a as a lame layman in Mahayana and Theravadan Buddhism, I'll just say it's interesting. I've spent the last two years in COVID listening to there's an English um, Zen there's an English Theravadan Buddhist monastery which puts their stuff up, and I've been listening to their podcast now for just years. Mm-hmm. But it is that these are monks who say, "Oh, Buddha had it right. How did Buddha How did Buddha get enlightened? Went to the forest. So mm-hmm. I'm out." I'm going into the forest, and every day mm-hmm. we're going to march in and get our food from a village, so we'll be close enough to a village to get food, Then we're going to go back and meditate. But when they come out and they talk about the things running through their head, it's partly about I'm off in my own head dealing with my own stuff, but your stuff, when they're processing and trying to clean up their thinking in some way, they're cleaning up their thinking about how aggravating the other monk is, about what should we be doing? Is it right yeah. or wrong for us to do this? Am I causing more harm doing this to this person, or am I? is it better to do... So this totally insularity of the stuff winds up when they go give these Dhamma talks to people. It's all very practical all about mm-hmm. their own emotions. And so, yeah, maybe there is something that you get away, you get away, you get away, you get away. And then you get all the way locked up in your citadel and you're like, oh, this is no place to hide. I can't just hide here mm-hmm. forever. No. Mm-hmm. It brings That's you interesting. back. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah, I will. Ha- that is a fascinating. I would be curious about that because I think there's an inclination to I think the the hard line is what's well I see it two ways you get the so there's um whatever his name Ryan Holiday or stuff who sort of mixes yeah. stoicism with business and so then it really is about interacting with the worldly world and being successful and there's this other side of stoicism which really just figure out what you're responsible for and let the other stuff go so here's mm-hmm. the line build the line 
But yeah, it's always porous, which I don't know, gets back to her. I don't know, gets back to Herodotus. You got to live with the people. You can't just wander off in some way. You got to come back to the people to figure out, I don't know, to learn, to grow. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what, so remind me again, what is the thing you're working on? What is the biggest thing you're working on right now? It's actually this joint project with, um, David McIver and Ali Aslam called Earthborn Democracy. And that's trying to think about the twin crises of the ecological crisis and the crisis of democracy, um, and how a response to the, both of those could come in the form of reclaiming this recurrent aspiration to democratic life and sort of seeing how there is a history of that by broadening the lens that we've been looking at those things with and seeing how that's actually um, has an unconscious or sort of um, not fully conscious dimension that's informing our practice now that we can tap into in order to re-engage in collective life in sustainable uh, ways towards earthly flourishing. And then starting to think about some of the practices right now around the world that are doing that already and surfacing those as, again, a way of like changing the story, thinking about restoring democracy as an act of restoration, telling a new story about democracy, one where there can be a democracy of species um, and not just a sort of democracy of human beings and that it's something that we can all participate in, we being all earthborn creatures, hence earthborn democracy. So I'm writing that right now and uh, with hope it will be out in, you know, with the academic timeline a year or two. Uh, we're hoping to finish it this year. <laughs> 